Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the continuing drama between Belarus and its neighbors, minus Russia, the continuing success of Russia's expansionism, and the rest of the world catching up on the conflict between Israel and Iran. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, the Taliban, our weekly Taliban update this time, is that they've seized control over the regional capitals of Kunduz, Sar-e-Pul, and Talokan. I believe that's how you pronounce all of those. So that's three regional capitals. I believe most of them are in the north of the country, so they're locking things down in the north with all their major efforts. And from what I can see from... from from various reports, is that they're securing the countryside. And, well, they've nearly finished doing that, and now they're making major moves against the larger cities. So the civil war is coming to a close, and will probably reach a climax at some point uh, with street fighting in the density of an urban area. So that'll be ugly, but I still believe the Taliban will win, ultimately. The government forces are in either full retreat or they're just getting obliterated in the field. It's it's really incredible to see just how fast the Taliban has seized control of the situation. The second the U.S. made the what, the suggestion that it was going to leave, because it hadn't left yet. Um, we were on track for a full withdrawal by... It was May 1st, that was what Trump had put into place. Then Biden pushed it back to September 11th now. But months, well, we're only like a month and a half away. Actually, no, we're in like in, what is it, almost mid-August? September 11th is literally just a month away. And that's when the full, the full withdrawal is supposed to be complete. And we're already seeing... These massive moves, like, the Civil War will probably be closed months, just months after the U.S. is gone, in an official capacity anyway. So, lots of, a very, very, what is it, a blitzkrieg? A blitzkrieg in the mountains. There we go. So, that's, that's the Taliban update on you. But, uh, meanwhile, in France, we have, uh, the backlash. We talked about it but their backlash against their vaccine passport mandate um now that it's come into effect has managed to grow even bigger than it was before so i talked about how it was basically a human ocean of protesters well now it's a a a human water world of protesters and it's ridiculous the numbers of people that are showing up and We'll see. We'll have to see because the government still doesn't want to back down on the issue, but I don't think they'll have much of a choice given time. 
unless they want to get overthrown, you know. Uh, this is the fifth French Republic we're on, isn't it? So, a sixth might be around the corner if the government doesn't uh, get the situation under control. Or perhaps if the situation, I mean, if perhaps if the government doesn't concede to its people, there'll be a sixth French Republic. But uh, we'll, we'll have to keep our eyes on that. Hezbollah has fired rockets into Israel following the Israeli strikes in Gaza, the airstrikes they were doing. Um, a whole lot of uh, really, really bad press for Israel coming out of the situation between them and Palestine. And it only ever gets worse, you know. It, it doesn't get better for them. It only ever gets worse uh, optically and geostrategically. And we'll get into the geopolitics of it all um, later on in the episode. Have a big segment towards that when we cover the rest of the world catching up to where we are on this issue. In other news, the Tigray rebels have managed to seize the town of Lalibela. Uh, which is in the neighboring province to the state of Tigray itself, um, which indicates we might be witnessing a a, a Taliban 2.0 takeover of Ethiopia, another mountainous country, um, where the government forces have proven incompetent against these fighters and may end up getting pushed back in similar style offensives that we're seeing in the Taliban. Um, granted, I believe that that offensive is going to be much slower because the Taliban had a base, like throughout the entirety of the country, they had bases of operation because they had been fighting for 20 years. These Tigray rebels have only just started fighting. So I don't imagine they'll have that same sort of logistical support from all those local supply bases. But if this keeps up, they might just walk all over the country within a couple of years, uh, assuming that. Ethiopian government, the federal government, can't put together a new army and train them well enough to fight these rebels because they got obliterated. It was incredible. It was horrifying if you were Ethiopian and you were hoping to win the civil war nice and easily. Um, or perhaps that'll just be the Battle of Bull Run and this gets drawn out into a multi-year-long conflict and lots of blood and sweat and treasure is put into putting down these rebels. And the federal government comes out on top. That is a possibility. The mountains work for the defender um, in a situation like this. And for Tigray, they were on the defense. Now they're on the offense, though. So the mountains are working against them rather than for them. Which means that the Ethiopian government, if they play their cards right can use the terrain to buy time because it's hard to move and it's hard to move large numbers of people so they they might make a comeback it's not out of the realm of possibility like i said it's probably going to take the tigray rebels longer to take over the country if that's the route they go for it's going to take them longer than say the taliban will but the ethiopian federal government can make a comeback it's just a matter of uh, coordination, logistics, and leadership. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see if they can amass at least a couple one of those and rally them towards the war effort. Maybe they can, maybe they won't. But we'll just have to wait and see. 
there were uh, some major wildfires on the Greek island of Evia, or Evia. It's E-V-I-A. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to pronounce that. I'll just go with Evia. Um, but these major wildfires are causing panic and has triggered a mass evacuation of the island towards the Greek mainland. So we have... That's another wildfire situation. We have wildfires in, like, California and Oregon here in the States. Um, there were, we talked last week about wildfires in southern Turkey, and Russia was helping out. Uh, but now there's wildfires in Greece, and no one's helping out. Wow. Wow. Well, maybe no one's helping out yet. But, um, looks like the Greeks are on their own. I guess all I guess all the the help in Europe is being used up in Germany and the Netherlands for their floods, oh, and I guess Austria as well. Speaking of floods, there were some heavy rains that are causing havoc in China and North Korea. We talked a little bit about China um, in one of our recent episodes, but now even North Korea is getting smacked with the floods. Really, lots of natural disasters. And, well, natural disasters caused by weather events that are just overdoing it, I'll say. We got hit with a winter storm that caused freezing in Texas, so I guess it's the rest of the world's turn now. <laughs> but, um, in other news, though, in a place where they don't have to worry about the rain, 69 Hamas members have been arrested, who were arrested in Arabia three years ago, uh, have now been sentenced to jail on the charges of membership in, affiliation with, and fundraising for terrorist organizations. So they've all been sentenced to jail, so they're, uh, I guess the trial phase is over. So they're, they're out of the picture. Uh, there will probably be 69 plus to replace them, uh, given the state of the Middle East. So we'll, we'll have to see, we'll have to see how things play out because militancy has been sort of either on the rise or it's just now, you know, being reported on. It's one or the other. I can't necessarily discern which it is. Uh, I haven't been paying as much attention towards these developments as I have since I started the podcast. So I'll, I'll just have to wait and see if I can discern it for myself. But lots and lots of militancy um, from non-state actors, um, but also increasing militancy from state actors. Um, we talk about the rise. We talk about rising powers and spheres of influence, and we'll talk about later on in this episode the undeclared war between Israel and Iran. So, lots and lots of militancy on the rise in general. So I guess I can say definitively that it's on the rise, but specific non-state actors, if that's on the rise or if it's just that we're just now reporting on it, I can't say for sure. But militancy does seem to be on the rise and causing a lot of havoc wherever it goes. I'll say that too. So there's that. Large fires, oh, even more fires, have caused a shakeup at Mexico's largest oil refinery. So that's bad for Mexico. Um, and a boat has capsized off of West Sahara's coast, and it took 40 migrants with it. So uh, that wasn't a natural disaster. It was a man-made disaster. 
Uh, and 40 people have gone to Davy Jones' locker because of it. Meanwhile, Moldova has elected a pro-Western government. Um, this specifically a, mo a more pro-EU government. We'll see, though. We'll have to see if they make moves towards integration with the EU. And the inevitable Russian response to that. If they choose to do it, mind you. They could just be pro-EU, pro-Western, and not choose to join NATO, and not choose to join the EU. Um, because they can, I don't know, read a map. You know, reading a map is a, is a highly sought-after skill these days. Or at least it should be. For countries that want to avoid disaster caused by bad decision-making on the geopolitical scene. Russia knows how to read a map, China knows how to read a map, and Turkey does as well. Israel and Iran? Yes. Yes, they do. But a lot of other countries, their leadership seem not to. So we'll, we'll have to see if Moldova can break the trend and get into the, the cool kids club <laughs> with Russia and China, where they can read a map and go, you know, maybe joining NATO isn't a good idea, you know? Maybe, maybe that all that talk going on, that's still going on with Ukraine about joining NATO, is probably gonna invoke some unwanted attention from Russia that maybe, maybe we're not ready to deal with, and maybe the West isn't uh, going to have any intention of helping us deal with either, because Ukraine has been left out in the cold. Who and Ukraine is economically. And geostrategically speaking, a lot more relevant than Moldova is. Well, from the standpoint of even Russia. But, so if the West didn't back Ukraine when they tried to join NATO, if Moldova tries to join NATO, or the, even the EU, and Russia responds uh, not so nicely, who's going to help them? They're going to get caught in the same catch-22 that Ukraine's in, where they're being asked of them by the West to make demands on the liberalization of their government that they cannot fulfill, um, um, that they can't fulfill, and that they're probably unwilling to go through with in wartime, um, but they're not going to win the war without Western support. And I would argue these days, even with Western support, they'd probably be in for the fight of their life and would probably still lose. It depends. Europe has no army. And the United States... The uh, United States is in a weird place. It's in a very weird place. There's lots of talk of defending allies, but I don't know if we'd go through with it if it was Russia. I just doubt it. Even China, to an extent... But we'll have to see what Moldova does. Maybe they'll be smart and not invoke unnecessary and unwanted attention. Or maybe they'll do something crazy and we might see a Ukraine 2.0 happen in Moldova. And I imagine Moldova won't last against rebels spawned by Russia anywhere near as long as Ukraine has. I do not believe they will, and that would open up a whole mess for the Ukraine, because then they would have 
a Russian-backed government to their flank, in the complete opposite direction from where they're fighting the other rebels already. In Moldova, I believe, stand by, I have to... I have to check and see. No, they do not. I was, I was confused for a moment as to whether or not Moldova had access to the Black Sea, but no, there's a little strip of Ukraine that blocks them. So, but even still, that would open up a whole new flank of danger for Ukraine. Should something, should a Ukraine happen to Moldova, that would be terrible for Ukraine. So, we'll have to see what Moldova does. Hopefully they are smart and can read a map, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, we talked about the heavy rains in China and North Korea, and uh, there's a Nigerian bombing raid. There was a Nigerian bombing raid against a militant camp uh, that was reported to have killed 78 militants, so a pretty stunning victory for the Nigerian military as they grapple with uh, numerous threats from numerous directions, militants uh, in the Northwest and separatists in the Southeast. We talked about that and their court case that the separatist leader is going through and potential precedents on it in uh, one of our previous episodes. Um, and speaking of troubled countries, Haiti wants a UN commission to investigate the death of their president. And then you have Russia, who is currently set to increase the supply of weapons uh, while also increasing their military training in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Uh, so we talked about that last episode as Russia's trying to ex they're trying to utilize their relationship uh, and the strategic position of these Central Asian countries. Um, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan to curb the flow of migrants from Afghanistan into, say, Central Asia and Russia itself. And in the process, they're expanding their sphere of influence. They're solidifying their grip, their hold over Tajikistan, and expanding into Uzbekistan, who was previously content to stand, you know, alone for the most part, independently of Russia, but with the recent events in Afghanistan and Russian pressure, they've decided to go along with Russia. Uh, and they're even holding joint military exercises in Uzbekistan uh, along their border with Afghanistan. So there's that. And Russia's also expanding their influence even further by deploying troops to the Armenian-Azerbaijani border. We talked about that as well. There was a request by the Armenian president for Russia to basically police the border between the two countries. We talked about the pros and cons of that, uh, specifically how Russia's the big winner in it all, as it allows them to really, really lock down their grip over the Caucasus. And that's exactly what has happened. They're now in charge of the border between these two sovereign states, which really means that they're not sovereign states anymore. They are, as I like to put it, unofficial Russian republics. And we'll have to see if something similar happens between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, who also have unresolved border disputes. And we'll have to, we'll have to see if Russia ends up 
putting up a de facto border along the Central Asia Afghan border. But that would include Turkmenistan at some point. Um, well, we'll have to see. Let's see. Turkmenistan is currently being left out in the cold. Uh, uh, we'll see if developments come along to change that. But that is the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat in just a moment. All right, now we get into the meat of the episode. So we'll start with Belarus and Poland. Now we talked a little bit about Russia and the former Soviet space, but now we're going to sort of zero in on what's going down between Belarus and its neighbors, and we'll just get into it. So the tensions have continued to rise between Belarus and its neighbors over claims of political repression in Belarus, specifically following their 2020 elections that happened in Belarus, where there was supposedly a landslide election by like 90-something percent. Now, I do believe Lukashenko did win. Uh, that's my opinion. We can't necessarily know for sure. But while I believe he won, I do not believe he won by such a large margin. In fact, it's my belief he probably he probably won in like the percentile range of like the 50s or the 60s. So maybe like a 50-something or 60-something percent of the vote. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what I believe. We can't know for sure, but there's obviously a divide here that's causing political um, strains. Political strains on an international level. We talked about the fallout between Belarus and Lithuania and how it spiraled out into a quarrel between Belarus and all three of the Baltic states as Latvia and Estonia took Lithuania's side on the issue. So, that was back then, and neither of them are back down. Obviously, Belarus isn't it's their country, but we see that the Baltics, um, they're also not backing down, but they've even gained uh, a new partner on their side of this issue, and that is sort of Poland. And I say sort of because we have protests in Poland over what they believe to be the political repression in Belarus, but we don't necessarily have the Polish government getting involved. So that's why I sort of say, well, sort of. But it does represent this uh, scandal getting bigger, even if only a little bit bigger. Ukraine, um, I believe they've made statements on this issue. But they've remained largely neutral on the affair in terms of actions. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's almost as if they have more uh, pressing issues to deal with, you know. I could only wonder what those issues could be. <coughs> Russia. <coughs> Russia. Uh, but um, speaking of Russia, they've taken an approach to this situation that is completely opposite. To that of these Polish protesters, the EU, and the Baltic states. In that they have put their full support behind Belarus rather than attacking it, basically, over its election. Um, 
and if I'm not mistaken, they even deployed some troops to help Belarus and help Lukashenko quell the unrest that broke out uh, in the immediate aftermath of the election. And that was only the second instance in 2020 of the Russians being invited into the territory of their neighbors for security purposes. Now, there are just as many of their neighbors who would appreciate not having Russian troops in their country as there are neighbors who would openly welcome the prospect, like Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, apparently Uzbekistan now, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Um, that's those who are, would willingly allow the Russians to put their troops there. On the other side, you have Turkmenistan, Georgia, you have Ukraine, minus the rebels. You have, um, well, there's obviously the Baltics too. So, there's a balance, but that balance is increasingly in favor of Russia. The former Soviet states are majority pro-Russia at this point in the game. So, that is an excellent development if you are Russian or if you are affiliating yourself with Russia. Because why wouldn't you want them to do well? Well, if you're Russia, if you're Russian, why wouldn't you want Russia to do well? Uh, if you're Ukrainian, this is terrible. <laughs> this is objectively the worst thing that could possibly be going down. Um, but Russia is being very successful in their expansion. I mean, they've basically shored up almost all of Central Asia. It took me by surprise. And I figured after what happened with the Caucasus War that they were going to go after Ukraine or Central Asia. But I figured it would take them time. I figured it would take a lot more time than it has. They have they have troops in four out of the five Central Asian nations. And they, they only had three before. And that was due to a military alliance. But now they have... They have Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan's not part of the CSTO. Uzbekistan have literally just been added over the course of the last few weeks because of the events in Afghanistan. And given that Turkmenistan also has a border with Afghanistan, I'm pretty sure they do. Or at the very least, they're a relevant player. No, they, they have a border. They have a pretty long border with Afghanistan. Uh, it's coming to me now. My glorious memory is not failing me the Turkmen's do have a border with Afghanistan um, so we'll probably see the Russians make moves towards them in time as well in that if they are successful in allowing them in ha convincing the Turkmen's not the the Turkmen's of Turkmenistan to allow Russia to put troops on Turkmenistan's border with Afghanistan Obviously, in unison with Turkmenistan's military, or at least that, that'll be it in the beginning. Russia will have de facto control over the entire southern anchor of the former Soviet border. From the Caucasus all the way down to Central Asia. And that is huge. That is absolutely huge. And I was not expecting this. To happen so quickly but it has and it's shocking to say the least um but that is a, 
it's a very, very interesting development. And when you, especially when you consider that a lot of this is happening through voluntary means. Um, but back to the Belarus scandal, you have the exact opposite happening in more European side, where you have Ukraine and the Baltics being pathologically hostile to Russia and anybody affiliated with Russia on the part of the Baltics. Ukraine has been neutral towards Belarus, um, but the Baltics haven't. They've sided actively against it. They've sided with Lukashenko's political opposition. Um, and Russia has sided with Lukashenko. So Belarus is effectively becoming a sort of proxy conflict for Russia and more pro-Western European nations along Russia's Western border. So we'll have to see where it goes. I, I always love to bring up the union state between Russia and Belarus and how situations like these can give the Russians leverage to force the issue of the Union State. Although I'm not entirely sure that they'll go through with it as of right now. It'll probably, if it is to happen, it'll happen later on down the line. But Belarus is the most closely integrated of all the former Soviet states with Russia. So such a prospect is more likely than with anyone else, which is why it happened in the first place. Which is, well, it's, it's, why, it's why it's a thing, the Union State. So we always, I always try to keep that in mind when looking at the developments around Belarus. They're being ostracized and alienated by basically every single one of their neighbors, uh, with two exceptions, and that's Russia and Ukraine. So in the event that Ukraine is somehow taken out of the picture probably through rebellion that breaks their back, um, which I had imagined is only a matter of time given the current state of the Ukrainian army um, and the current state of the Russian armed forces, I'll say that much too, and the rebels, given the state of the conflict in general, um, we could see Ukraine get taken out of the picture in... Well, a similar manner to what the Taliban's doing to the government of Afghanistan. Except with much more, how do I say, flair and swiftness. Because they're, they're fighting on the open flats of Ukraine. Is that, that'd be the battlefield that they'd have to go through. Which isn't much of an obstacle at all. There's only like one major river that would stop you. And I'm sure the Russians could assist in getting across that river. So... If Central Asia is increasingly locked down and there's only one country left, there's only one domino left, um, we could see Russia pivot then, probably a couple months after the fact, because they would probably have to digest what they've consumed, this massive air region of the world that's, if I'm not mistaken, roughly the same size as the continental United States, uh, if not slightly smaller or maybe even slightly larger. I'm not quite sure on the exact measurements, but it's a huge area that they're locking down under their influence. So if they get control of Central Asia, they will pivot to the last piece, which is Ukraine. Uh, the, that's where they can go. Ukraine and Belarus are the last places that they go to 
before the hardest piece, which is integration, the reintegration of the Baltics. So when Central Asia is on lockdown, there's, there's only Belarus and Ukraine. Belarus is being backed into a corner by its neighbors, and Russia's their only friend. Ukraine is neutral. Russia is their only friend. And they are dependent on Russia economically. They're integrated with Russia through infrastructure. It, we could see the beginnings right now. We could be seeing the beginnings of the Union State moving forward into an actual union between these two countries. And it's shocking to think that all this is happening so fast. If that is the case, it will have been much, it will be on a, what, a, a ridiculous speed of reintegration for such a large and vast territory that was lost in 1991. So, what, 30-something years later and they're all back together again? That is incredibly fast. Uh, especially when you're talking a lack of conflict between Russia itself and these states. It's not like Russia's going on the warpath um, to reintegrate all of them. There's only one of them that they're doing that for, and that's Ukraine, and they're doing it indirectly. And they'll probably at least attempt to do the same in the Baltics when the time comes to reintegrate them, or at least make their take their they're gonna try their hand at doing so. I don't imagine they won't. Because there is the Kaliningrad issue. And there was a there was one thing I was watching where Kaliningrad would be the potential um trigger for a war between Russia and the Baltics. So we I try to keep my eyes on these developments, and they're moving along much faster than I anticipated they could. Like, again, we knew Russia was going to go after the Central Asian republics, um, especially once they had the Caucasus on lockdown. But who could have anticipated that they could grab them up so fast? Who could have anticipated that? This is a huge area, a huge area. Lots of different countries that uh, don't get along very well, and yet the Russians step in, and they're like, we're here now. And now there's only one country left, Turkmenistan, before they pivot back to Europe. It's truly incredible to watch, and truly incredible to get to witness, really, because this, this is going to be history. This is going to be remembered i don't know what it'll be remembered for but it'll definitely be developments that people who make those history documentaries be it on youtube or on say a more official capacity although the gap is closing between those two um people who make history documentaries will who cover the history of russia will at some point in the future go back over events the events that we're witnessing today and it'll be much more condensed and summarized and They'll have the hindsight of 2020 for them, whereas we have to sort through the mire and pick apart the things that make sense in our time and try to piece them together in a way that makes sense moving forward and will make sense for those who come after us looking backwards, too. That's the struggle, because we don't have all the information, and the people in the future do.
but I'd say we're doing a pretty good job um, witnessing history and talking about it. Talking about it big time. But that is the former Soviet space. Uh, always a fun region of the world to watch, you know, when you're not living there. But um, there's another fun region of the world to watch when you're definitely, definitely not living there. And that's the Middle East. The Middle East. Um, I can't tell how many times I've said the name Iran and Israel making this next segment. But I'll, I promise it won't be too redundant. I may or may not have to take a break from talking about these two next episode. Um, maybe I'll talk. Maybe I'll talk about Cuba, you know. But uh, we have Iran and Israel. So the major, the major news story: um, twenty civilian ships, a grand total of twenty civilian ships, mostly oil tankers, um, that have been affiliated with either Iran or Israel, have been attacked as of late. Uh, in and around the Middle East. So that's the Persian Gulf, the Sea, the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea, and the Eastern Mediterranean along the coastline of the Levant, which is Israel, Lebanon, and Egypt. So, 20 civilian ships have been targeted and attacked. And recently, we talked about that tanker that was hit and was severely damaged. And they were blaming Iran for it. Of course, Iran denies this. And we'll have to wait and see to verify if it was them or not. There, ha To my knowledge, there hasn't been an official verification that Iran is actually responsible for. Excuse me. But we have the escalation nonetheless. And they are a probable actor. Similar to how um, when people get... Similar to how when Israel would uh, take down the various high-ranking officials in Iran uh, and would would bomb certain parts of Iran, you know, covertly. And, you know, we, we'd sit and wonder, well, who could have done this? And it's like, well, there's a very short list. The, the list is very short, so you can narrow it down very easily to who was probably behind something like this. So... It is my opinion that Iran was behind that tanker that we talked about last episode that got hit, severely injured. A U.S. destroyer had to escort it back to safety. It was probably the Iranians, if we're just being honest. Probably them. It could not be them, but it was probably them, you know. But it has sparked some intrigue among other people, you know, outside of us. Um, and this development the development that civilian shipping is being targeted, um, it has alerted people and news agencies around the world uh, to the showdown that is happening and has been happening in the Middle East for a while now. And this state of undeclared war between Iran and Israel is now being dubbed the Shadow War. I guess that's a fitting title. They they say because it's mysterious and un, and kind of undefined, I say just because it's an undeclared state of war between these two, that we can very clearly observe. I mean, they're shooting at ships, man. There there are people on board those, 
uh, Iranian, Iranian people and Israeli people that are being shot at by state actors. We talked about the rise of militancy a couple minutes ago. And we can see now that even the state actors are getting in on the militancy fun. So it is very clearly a state of undeclared war. So I guess shadow war does fit the bill for that. You know, I wish I had a more flashy title myself, but I, I will just go along with it. We'll give we'll give them this one. You know, you know, I, I guess I can't be the one to name every event. You know, the Nile question, the Crimean incident, you know, I, I, I will we'll, we'll give it to them. we'll give it to them for this one, this one time. But I'd picked up on this development because I found it amusing, very, very amusing that the rest of the world is catching up to us on this specific subject that we've been covering um, for months now, this undeclared war between Israel and Iran. We've also been covering and speculating on its escalations and where it may go. We've covered Israel hacking nuclear plants in Iran, we've covered Israel killing nuclear scientists and high-ranking military personnel. I will never forget that story where two people on a motorcycle pulled up, shot a guy, and drove off um, on some James Bonds. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Some straight out of a movie, all right? It was straight out of a movie, but it happened in real life. And these are real people. It is insane to think about but we've we've been covering it we've been covering it since last year when I, the podcast was only a couple weeks old i we've covered iran lashing out at nearby shipping cuz they at that time they had much more constrained ability to respond to these sorts of things so they would lash out at nearby shipping they'd fire rockets they would really make a scene all right and would take all the attention off of what israel did and put it onto them, and coincidentally, they'd get all the negative press. <laughs> they'd be blamed for the problem that Israel technically started. We saw last year also the where that went, you know, uh, with the incident that occurred between them and South Korea, uh, when they seized a South Korean oil tanker, to which the Koreans responded by sending a destroyer and i guess in retrospect i'll say that the sort of that the peter zion's tanker wars uh that he predicted was going to happen is now uh in the realm of reality it is now happening uh, and if you listen to peter he talks about how countries from east asia will have to sail their navies to the persian gulf them sail their navies to the persian gulf pick sides in a centuries-old blood feud uh, load up the crew themselves and then hope no one shoots at them on the way out. And that is almost exactly what went down. All right. You had South Korea sailing its destroyer over to the Middle East to protect its oil tanker. Um, obviously, they had already picked their side. That oil tanker was coming from Arabia. It took way more digging to find that than I thought it should have, but I found out. Um, so... And a South Korean oil tanker coming from Arabia, they picked their side in the blood feud and hope no one shoots at you on the way out, i.e. Iran. 
but it's not to the point where those act the East Asians are being shot at right now. It's just Israel and Iran shooting at each other. But where does that go? If no one's de-escalating, it's going to continue to expand. And someone else is going to get caught in the crossfire just like South Korea did. Except it might be a shot fired rather than a tanker seized. Um, but I'll... Peter Zion was right and we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, but back to the, the destroyer and the tanker. That situation was, luckily enough, promptly de-escalated by the skillful diplomacy of Qatar. And uh, as a side note, I'll say that they've been making serious moves to become sort of a sort of an indispensable center of banking and diplomatic mediation in the Middle East. Very, very smart, I'll say that. But going back to the Korean response to having their oil tanker seized, I'll also say that a vast number of people truly don't even know how easily that event could have spiraled into war. I mean... I, I said this in the episode where I covered it, but what would have happened had that destroyer made its way to the Persian Gulf before the crisis was resolved? What would have happened if Qatar wasn't as good at diplomacy and mediation as they apparently are? Um, again, kudos to Qatar. But what would have happened if the destroyer got there? There, I'll tell you what would have happened. There would have been an ultimatum, all right? South Korea would have demanded their oil tanker back. And if they didn't like the Iranian answer, they would have shot at them with their destroyer. And there would have been war. Open war. It, it wouldn't need to be undeclared. Ever, ever. You, we wouldn't, it wouldn't need to be called a shadow war. Everyone would see it very clearly um, for what it was. People wouldn't need to dig. People wouldn't need to look at it for weeks and weeks of for the well for the better part of a year to go you know maybe there's something going down between these two no 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 no. there would have been open conflict between these two states and they were that close and it's really stunning it's really stunning to think about you know even in retrospect just how close they came I mean, again, South Korea sent a destroyer, for heaven's sake. You don't you don't send that uh, to go sell cookies. You, you send those when you mean to put some oomph behind your words. And oomph they did put behind those words. They got their tanker back. I'm sure that played a key role in Iran's decision to hand it back over. No one... There would have been a shooting war in the Persian Gulf, and people would have got caught in the people would have got caught in the crossfire, and it could have escalated. But luckily, it didn't. But it came that close to doing so. So, we, uh, we, I really don't know even know what to say. Other than I guess we'll we'll just have to give ourselves a nice pat on the back. For uh, seeing this ourselves, you know, uh, not just that we almost saw a war in the Middle East between South Korea and Iran, of all people, but that we saw this shadow war between basically everyone else, you know. So we'll just give ourselves a nice pat on the back, you know, a good old circle jerk <laughs> uh, for paying attention. 
to the events around the world and piecing them together in a way that other people will catch on to later. So we're ahead of the curb. We'll, we'll see how long it takes them to catch on to the Russian strategy. I saw a video on the subject, and I think it won't be too long before more people figure out what the Russians are up to. And that is the reintegration of the former Soviet sphere. But I, I'll digress there. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll digress. I'll digress. But now I'll go back to the Shadow War, and I guess we'll, I guess I'll go over that I have observed through this Shadow War. Um, I've observed that the recent developments in it have given Iran more options in how they fight back against Israel. Uh, it's given them more options while simultaneously constricting Israel's range of movement. Um, there's obviously the unresolved issue of Palestine, which really the more I think about that, the more I, um, the more I realize even just looking at the short term consequences of the Palestine conflict slash war slash mess diplomatic mess that Israel is in the more I look at it the more I realize just how much of an open wound it is for Israel I mean seriously they don't have a cut they have a gash and it's bleeding really really bad the optics are terrible every every day there's some news story about a, a kid being killed or a civilian being bombed um and due to the effectiveness of Israel's Iron Dome, Israel isn't bearing the same sort of losses that they're inflicting. And again, I'll point to that nuance itself. If the Iron Dome wasn't as good as it apparently is at stopping these rockets from hitting Israel, we'd probably be having a different conversation about whether or not Israel uh, whether or not the response is unjust or disproportionate because the rockets obviously would have hit their targets. But they're not because of the Iron Dome. Israel has better defense and better offense at the same time. But because their defense is so good, the optics are only of them bombing other people. So it's terrible. It is a nightmare that they're in. And it's given... It's even elevated to the geopolitical stage, you know, international in an international sense, in that all of their neighbors are siding against them. I don't know a single one of uh, Israel's neighbors who have taken their side on this issue. Even Turkey has stepped in on the side of the Palestinians, speaking out against Israel. Um, Greece and Cyprus are obviously preoccupied with Turkey and Turkey's making moves to formalize the, the integration of northern Cyprus into Turkey itself, and they're very quietly amassing a navy. But Israel is basically all on their own right now, so their range of movement has been constricted just from the Palestine issue, while at the same time, Iran, again, is being given more and more options in how they fight back against Israel. We've we've talked about how we talked about how the Palestinians are being used by Iran against Israel. And it's 
it's really just the perfect wrench that's been thrown into Israeli sabotage efforts for, towards Iran. Well, perfect, perfect from the Iranian perspective. If you're Israeli, this is a terrible wrench that's been thrown into all of your sabotage efforts towards Iran. Um, because now the Iranians get to be on the offensive. And that's exactly what they're doing. This situation with Palestine has enabled Iran to more effectively utilize those militant groups in and around Palestine who are hostile towards Israel uh, to attack Israel on its home soil and with relatively low input on the part of Iran itself. Iran does next to nothing and the militants keep Israel preoccupied in Israel, in Gaza, in the West Bank, fighting basically basically all of their neighbors simultaneously. Because, um, and I'll get into how they're doing that. Well, I'll get into why that is the case, not necessarily how. They're just defending at this point. Um, it's come at a relatively low input on the part of Iran to do all of this. And the conflict has also given Iran the opportunity to shore up its grip over their sphere of influence to the point, as we've witnessed, where their allies within their sphere have allowed rockets to be fired at Israel from within their territories. Most notably, um, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. Syria was a very interesting case because Israel had done an attack on Iranian military personnel and the response to that came from Syria before Iran. So what you had there was Iran officially gaining an ally in the in terms of actions because why else would Syria respond to something done to Iran? against Israel when they could just sit it out. If they were, they could just be on friendly terms with Iran and go, oh, that's terrible. You know, maybe we'll help you out. But no, Iran was attacked by Israel and Syria responds in kind by allowing rockets to be fired at Israel. And I'll stress that as a side note, the reason I emphasize all of this is that these countries could stop these militant groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, and others from using their territory, their soil, as a base to attack Israel from, but they've chosen not to. And that's the important piece. The choice not to stop these people, the choice to allow it to go through, and the choice to actively side against Israel... Uh, while pretending not to be actively against Israel. Um, in the part that they have plausible deniability. They have super duper plausible deniability, except it's very clear that they're endorsing these actions. And Israel has to bear the brunt of that, and there's not much Israel can do about that. I mean, what, what is Israel going to do? They're busy fighting Palestine in their home soil. Not to mention, 
that if they were to try to do something, all they would do is get more fighting in, uh, on their home turf in response. All they'd do is stoke more animosity towards them, and they already have all their neighbors to deal with. They've all sided with Palestine. So, they could stop this. All Israel's neighbors, they could stop these rockets from being fired at Israel, but they've chosen not to. And Jordan has even been added to Iran's sphere of influence because of this specific development where you have these militant groups that are being allowed by those countries to fire rockets at Israel from within the safety of those countries. Because uh, Israel would otherwise, if they were in Gaza, in Palestine, Israel would be bombing them mercilessly. But they're not in Palestine, they're outside of Palestine. They're in Jordan, they're in Lebanon, they're in Syria. I'm pretty sure I even saw uh, one report that rockets were being fired from Iraq at Israel. And that just says it all, now doesn't it? The entire Iranian sphere of influence is being utilized as a safe zone for these anti-Israeli militants from Hamas to Hezbollah to everyone else. And it's, I guess it's the perfect example of where the Iranian sphere of influence lies. Because, again, Jordan's been added. But I'll say about Jordan is that I believe Jordan is about as loose a member of the Iranian sphere of influence as the Houthis in Yemen are. But that still makes them a part of the sphere nonetheless, even though they'll, Jordan probably will exercise greater independence and autonomy than, say, Syria and Iraq will. Um, and Lebanon is in no position to be acting autonomously on anything right now. So, they're, I guess that makes Jordan even more autonomous than, say, Lebanon, who I view as being on the very edge of Iran's sphere of influence as well. <clears throat> But um, none of that is good news if you're Israel, all right? E even uh, even the loose affiliation with Iran's as a part of Iran's sphere of influence um, is not exactly what you'd call a positive development if you are in the Israeli government. This is quite literally an encirclement with only Egypt being missing from the equation. On Egypt and Egypt only. All right, and it's only a matter of time before Egypt. Um, well, I guess it's not a matter of time, but Egypt has made clear it likes uh, the Palestinians more than the Israelis, at least in terms of you know what they say. Their words say that they back the Palestinians, but their actions have reflected something closer to neutral, as close to neutral as Israel's going to get. Um, they're sending aid, uh, the Egyptians, they're sending aid um, to help uh, Palestine rebuild, if I'm not mistaken. Aid and medical equipment. So if, if that doesn't spell it out for you, that they're not exactly on your side, um, well, then you're encircled. <laughs> That's exactly what you are. You're encircled. And all of your neighbors are actively working against you. 
Now, Egypt, I don't believe, is a part of Iran's sphere of influence. I believe Egypt to be an independent pillar, same as Turkey. Um, but all three of these independent pillars, Turkey, Egypt, and Iran, are working against you from three separate directions. Three separate angles of attack. And that is terrible if you're Israel, and it's wonderful if you're Iran. So, that's sort of the mess that Israel and Iran are in. Um, and Iran gets to use the leeway that they've been given, the, the free hand that they have, because Israel has to use its free hand to strangle militants at home. But, um, uh, yeah. Israel and Iran, huh? I guess shit really did hit the fan. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. On my uh, geopolitical podcast, we're, we're talking a whole lot about the Middle East, specifically Israel and Iran. I'll see if I can get away from it for, you know, at least a week or two. Um, but that's where, all the, that's where all the good stuff is happening for me to report on. Um, but I do want to do an episode where I talk about Cuba and sort of recap the developments there, like I did with uh, Burma. Burma's gone a bit quiet as of recently, uh, as they're trying the, they're putting on trial the leader of the party that was accused of cheating in the election. So we'll have to, I have to be on the lookout for developments that come out of that. But it's gone a bit quiet over there. But maybe I can do a recap on the what's been going down in Cuba in the next episode. So, well, yeah, the world is changing. It's changing rapidly. The Russians have secured their hold over the Central Asian region almost completely in a matter of months from me bringing up that that's exactly what they were going to do next. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. It's fun to watch. But uh, we're going to have fun watching all of that together. And I've been your host, I, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.